So um, let me quickly introduce Matt. I don't think Matt needs a lot of introduction. Uh, Matt Zelstra, uh, he's currently employed by Discovery Health, has been for a while. Um, so uh, an actuary, studied, qualified. And he's an healthcare actuary uh, with more than 15 years of experience in healthcare benefit pricing, claims investigations, risk-adjusted efficiency comparisons, predictive modeling around healthcare outcomes, and he currently manages a team of multidisciplinary senior professionals that research, develop, and maintain clinical analytical tools. And his topic today, I think it's quite varied, um, but the one on paper is natural language processing in healthcare. So let's give him a welcome round of applause. Thanks, Matt. Thank you very much, Anton. I realize that I am the only person standing between you and your caffeine fix for the afternoon. Um, my presentation is quite long, and I'll try and go through it as quickly as I can. Um, so let's start without further ado. So what I'm going to go through is natural language processing for dummies. Um, that's more for my benefit than for yours. Then I'm going to talk about secret language of doctors, which is about uh, clinical natural language processing. Then tell me how you really feel, which is sentiment analysis. Going off topic, about using topic modeling way out of its normal use. And then finally talking about chatty robots, uh, um, uh, chatbots, and how we apply them at Discovery, and then following on with uh, some questions from you guys. So to start with, natural language processing, or NLP for short, is the study of how computers understand and respond to humans speaking natural language, as opposed to how com computers respond to languages that have been built for them, such as SQL, Python, C, Java, which are easy for a computer to understand. Natural language for a person is extremely difficult for computers to understand because human language is full of nuance uh, with ma many ways to say the same thing but with slightly different meanings or different emotions attached to them. It's full of ambiguity with words that could mean completely different things in different contexts. As a result, it is highly contextual and depends on who is speaking, to whom they are speaking and what the situation is. So language also differs depending on the medium that's used. So there's a difference between spoken language and language that's used in WhatsApp when you're speaking in shorthand to your friends. It often also includes jargon, you know, insurance jargon or uh, clinical jar jargon from those domains. So the issue is that NLP is not new. The history of NLP goes back to around the 1950s when Alan Turing first proposed the Turing test which set out the criteria for developing a truly artificial intelligence system that can converse with a human uh, he was unaware that they were actually communicating with the computer. So this is my definition of no AI, which like NoSQL means not only SQL. This is, NLP is not only AI. It started off with much of the work being based on hard-coded rules and algorithms with large ontologies of words to structure real-world information into something that a computer could understand. In the late 1980s, with the introduction of machine learning, the first statistical programs to translate um, between different languages using machines began to emerge, uh, which leveraged the rapidly increasing computational power. The first of these were basic decision trees, which mimicked the hard-coded if, hard if-then rules, but this rapidly evol evolved to the use of hidden Markov models to tag different parts of speech using calculated probabilities. Other probabilistic models then began to emerge with contextual decisions on the meaning of the natural language based on softer probabilistic decisions. So recently, deep neural networks have uh, become very popular and widespread due to the incredible results that they achieve without the need to separate NLP into a pipeline of intermediate tasks. Okay. These pipelines of tasks are, however, very important still 
for applications, for various different applications, whether they've actually been individually replaced with probabilistic models or still use the hard-coded rules. So we can break these up into two, times, two main types of tasks, syntactic analysis and semantic analysis. So syntax refers to the arrangement of words in a sentence so that they make grammatical sense, and grammatical rules are applied in computer, computer algorithms to group words together to derive their meaning. Semantics refers to the meaning of the words in their, in their form, and this is the most difficult aspect of NLP because it has to take into account nuance and context. So on the syntactic side, we've got the first, first uh, pipeline is the stemming, which reduces words to their root form. For example, running, runs, runner, are all converted back to the root word by removing the end of the word. Quite easy to do. The part of speech tag attempts to determine uh, which part of speech the word belongs to, such as noun, verb, adjective, article, preposition, you know, remember from English high school. The word book could be used as a noun or as a verb. It needs to be considered in the context of the sentence to understand what part of speech it is. Then we've got a slightly more sophisticated uh, version of stemming, which is called limitization. It's similar to stemming, but uses the identified part of speech as well as the rest of the sentence to the reduce the word down to its lemma or dictionary form. For example, the word better has good as its lemma which is missed by stemming because it can't just be trimmed off the end. An example that uses the part of speech tagging is where the word meeting could be a verb reduced to to meet or a noun reduced to a meeting. The next aspect is sentence boundary detection which attempts to find the sentence boundaries typically by looking for full stops and other punctuation marks but does need to watch out for things such as abbreviations. Next is word segmentation or tokenization, which breaks down each sentence into the words in the sentence, most often just by identifying the spaces in the sentence. Next aspect is word chunking or morphological segmentation, which collapses these words together again into related phrases or morphemes. Then we need to parse those, which involves grammatical analysis to determine which words are related to each other. Yeah, that's a little bit on the syntactic side. There's, there's a couple more pipelines, but these are the most important ones. Um, for my talk. Under the semantic analysis, we've got named entity recognition, which attempts to map words to proper names, such as places or people. And then it also tries to identify what type of name it is. Is it a person, a location, or an organization? There's word sense disambiguation, which <laughs> involves getting the meaning to the word based on the context that it's used. And then some of the stuff that we also looked at is sentiment analysis, which attempts to extract subjective information to determine the emotional opinion of the author. And topic segmentation, which attempts to separate out different topics in a document across a corpus of documents without knowing anything about the potential topics, but rather using the co-occurrence of words. Okay, so NLP is used in a number of applications from grammar and spell checking on your phone to smart assistants such as Siri and Alexa. <coughs> I read a paper yesterday about researchers exploring NLP to assess chess moves based on expert commentary using sentiment analysis instead of looking at all the possible permutations of, on the chessboard, which is quite interesting. Hey, first application that, that we were um, playing around with is the secret language of doctors. So even though doctors are human, they often speak a language that is very foreign to most of us. This makes it especially difficult for computers to understand their clinical narrative. Due to doctors' preference and the speed of capture, 80% of health record content is actually captured in unstructured form in free text clinical notes. So a specialized field of NLP called clinical natural language processing has evolved to extract useful information and to codify it um, from these clinical narratives. So if you look at the emergency department triage note, this doesn't even look like proper English. The sentences are very poorly structured with very little context to understand that 10 out of 10 there is actually referring to, to pain measurement, 
uh, with the ABD as an acronym referring to, to the abdomen. So we've got very source, various sources of this, this valuable clinical information such as medical histories, doctor notes, radiology reports, referral notes, authorization details, discharge summaries. The trick is to get to the value of the, that information and understanding it. So what does CNLP do? So CNLP is able to categorize the different parts of the clinical narrative. So if you look at this doctor's note here, patient is nauseous and vomiting and has pain in his stomach on the left side. There's no history of gastric disorders, suspected gastric ulcer, admitting for gastroscope on the 15th of November 2016. This is an old note. But if we look at it, so what it can do is it can tease out the symptoms, it can look at the, the history, identify the history, uh, figure out what is the diagnosis, and look at the, the proposed treatment going forward. Okay. Not only can it do that for those, those items there, but it can also understand the various attributes, such as the laterality or body side of the problem, the negations and no history, the certainty of the diagnosis, as well as the timing of, of the, the intended treatment. It has to deal with multiple misspellings, because doctors are often in a hurry, uh, acronyms such as FBC or for, for blood count or AMI for a heart attack, and it needs to identify whether the subject is actually the patient or a family member of the patient. So we found some software called CTEX. It's uh, an Apache Clinical Text Analytics and Knowledge Extraction Tool, or CTEX. It's a natural language processing system for the extraction of information from an electronic medical record, clinical free text. Okay, so here we have a very simple patient note. The patient underwent a CT scan in April which did not reveal lesions in his liver. Okay, so the first step is sentence boundary detection, which is very easy because there's only one sentence. So the first full stop indicates that that is the sentence. Okay. Uh, next is the tokenization where each word, separated by a space, is split up. Then the words are normalized using lemmatization and stemming to get to their root dictionary word form. You can see that under, underwent goes to undergo and lesions goes to the singular lesion. The last step in the first pipeline is the part of speech tagger which identifies to which part of speech each word belongs. The next pipeline uses the named entity recognition. This is where the magic really happens, where it identifies the clinical concepts and returns the unique code from the Unified Medical Language System, or UMLS. Here there are three clinical named entity mentions, CT scan, lesion, and liver, with their corresponding clinical entity type, procedure, disease, and anatomy, and their CUIs, or concept unique identifiers from the UMLS. CTEX also matches clinical entities to the systematized nomenclature of medicine, clinical terms, or SNOMED CT. Much easier to remember that. So the latest deep learning algorithms, namely the LSTM or CNN neural networks, have been successfully trained to recognize and normalize these clinically named entities. The next pipeline uses word chunking to group words, related words together, as well as parsing to understand the relationship between the words to each other. This allows us to assign various properties to the entities that have been recognized. For the diagnosis, this could include whether it is positive, negative, speculative, conditional, or part of family history or patient history. The co-referent pipeline looks to link the patient with its noun, and um, the, the other UMLS relation tries to link the location of the lesions with the liver. Finally, the temporal relation pipeline finds that April contains the CT scan and further that the CT scan contains the lesion to identify when all of these things happen to what. So depending on the type of entity recognized, a related template will then be loaded to extract the related information. So for example, if we found a, a medicine mention, we'd open the medicine template and look for information around the dosage amount, its frequency, the route, and whether it should be taken after meals on an empty stomach. So from this rich hospital discharge note, 
It's very, very detailed. We would typically, as funders, only get two pieces of information, probably the primary ICD being the N39.0, which is a urinary tract infection, and the CCSA or CPT code 43235, which is the scope that's planned to investigate that UTI. Okay? But as you can see from the, the clinical natural language processing, we can extract many SNOMED terms, which give us a very rich, detailed, codified information that we can use. And one of the other ways that we can use this is for computer-assisting coding. So here there's an example of a map group from SNOMED CD, CT to ICD-10 codes. You can see here, if we find a, a specific SNOMED code, we can look for the presence of other SNOMED codes, which are in the rules here, to identify whether this is a male infertility or a female infertility, and then map to the correct ICD-10 code. So we could take all those previous SNOMED codes and generate you know, suggested coding for the doctor to then select for, for his actual application of his claim. So signs and symptoms which are often not coded for, but captured in the clinical narrative give a lot of information on a person's condition and their response to treatment. These can be used proactively to track disease progression and response to treatment leading to better quality of care and improved patient care and experience. Good examples of the additional clinical data are ejection fraction scores for congestive heart failure and side effects for medications such as statins. Social determinants of health, such as food security or challenges with transpo transportation, can also be extracted from the clinical narrative. Clinical decision support systems, which guide doctors in evidence-based care protocols and pathways, require very uh, granular data, which ICD-10 coding does not adequately meet. Analysis of clinical notes makes it possible to avoid complications from potential gaps in care or polypharmacy and reduce medical errors. Additional clinical data makes, improve, makes improvements to our prediction models of which people are high risk and increasing to higher risk levels, which leads to better risk management and disease management, as well as pricing adequately for these trends into the future. It also allows us, as I mentioned, for the automation of a number of operational and clinical processes such as DUR and authorizations, as well as assisting doctors with providing computer-assisted coding using the SNOMED to ICT or, or um, CPT cross maps. So that's our application in CNLP. Next one is sentiment analysis, which I labeled, tell me how you really feel. So sentiment analysis is used to determine a customer's emotional state, whether this is positive, negative, or, or neutral. We can often get to this information using customer surveys, but the problem with it is that they are very time consuming. I don't know about you, but I find them rather annoying, especially when I get multiple surveys from the same company. They typically reach less than 5% of the population, and what they really do try and do is measure a performance score, which is an objective measure. They don't really want to know how you feel. They just want to know how well are we doing. So we've got lots of free text data from various different types of interactions, call transcripts, WhatsApp messages, virtual agent interactions, emails, social media comments, and the survey responses, uh, which are captured in free text. This increases our reach to about 40% of the population, which is a lot bigger. So what we do with that is we often have to go through a number of steps. First step is to clean the data. So we go through the email ch chain and clear out any subsequent emails and only look at the latest email. We clear out the, the greetings and the signatures, and we handle misspellings and abbreviations. We adjust for emoticons, and then the sentiment analysis starts using a sentiment lexicon, which is a 9,000 plus word dictionary with sentiment scores attached to it. We've added a whole lot of uh, idiomatic expressions of how people express themselves. We have to add some slang, like South African slang, like lacquer and other interesting ones. We have to remove product-specific words which would normally sound like good things, like benefits, but in this case it's more talking about insurance. 
And then we have to build some additional rules to allow for context in terms of negators, never, you know, it's never good or never great. Intensifiers vary. Capitalization, you know, horrified. Um, punctuation and acronyms, <laughs> FUBAR. The model then generates sentiment, not only generates the polarity, but also the intensity of the sentiment. And the final step, as any good actuary will do, is to validate against actual data to see how well the sentiment analysis works. And you can see the two graphs which are validating the NLP model against our complaints. And you can see that we've got a lot higher complaints for negative sentiment scores and a lot fewer for positive sentiment. I'm not quite sure what's going around the middle there at the zero sentiment score, maybe it's unknown. And then according to our very own internal um, staff uh, measure pulse score, which assesses the staff happiness, you can see that the um, score increases, uh, the sentiment score increases as the, 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 the score increases. So how can we use this? It allows an organization to improve customer service, improve product messaging, improve the timing and content of communication to members, reduce customer service workload by preempting which members are going to phone you because they're already upset. Positive sentiment relates to the service team to boost morale, so it's not only negative, it could also be used for good, uh, and ultimately to prevent lapses and to improve overall customer satisfaction. We do have some remaining challenges which we're dealing with, so there are 10 other official languages other than English, plus a whole lot of unofficial languages. We have to deal with sarcasm, and unfortunately when people get upset, they tend to use sarcasm a lot. Uh, we have to deal with medical insurance jargon. Uh, and also lack of well-formed sentences. So when people are angry, <laughs> they vent without punctuation or, <laughs> or actual verbs. Um, <laughs> so we're looking at combining this sentiment analysis with, with topic modeling as well. So the next application is, is topic modeling, except we're going very much off topic here. So latent Dirichlet allocation, or LDO for short, takes a corpus of documents as inputs and finds topics as outputs, hence the term topic modeling. So each document is modeled as a multinomial distribution of topics, and each topic is modeled as a multinomial distribution of words. So think of a document as a randomly generated document of words from topics. The footed model indicates what proportion of words in each document are allocated to each topic. It also produces a weighted list of words per topic where a higher weight indicates a higher likelihood that the word is associated with that topic. So it does this by treating the words of the document as if they're randomly generated based on randomly selected topics and randomly selecting those words belonging to those topics. That's why it's called a probabilistic generative model. So if we look at plate notation, the word WMN is the word in the nth document in position N. Okay. Uh, we've got alpha as the Dirichlet prior parameter for the topic distribution for each document. So that determines what, what proportion of topics are in each document. And then that gives you, for that nth word in the nth document, the topic that, you're, that it's associated with. And then on the other side, we've got the beta Dirichlet prior, which is the word distribution for each topic, which says, given a topic, what words are distributed for that topic. And using those two together, you can randomly generate a word MN. Given the topic, you can generate the word. All we know, though, is a hidden marker model is the word MN in the document. Okay? So if you imagine this as a person going to the triangle, which has got three topics in it, randomly selecting a colored ball from that triangle, and the topics here are sport, animals, and tech. And once they've selected that ball, they then go to the, the field where the, the different topics are set out, with balls representing each word spread amongst those different uh, topic groups, and they randomly select a ball from that, 
that topic group. And based on the word associated with that they pick up with that ball, they then fill in a document. And they repeat that process many different times. Okay. Now this is where we went off topic. So instead of applying this to a normal natural language processing problem, we applied it to develop clinical pathways of care. So we were treating the words as if they were clinical activities and the topics as if they are clinical patterns that the doctors actually, actually use for the treatment of care. So we based this on ischemic heart disease as the episode of care. We looked at uh, members from 2008 to 2018. We made sure that they were on the scheme for at least uh, three, three months before the start of the episode. Uh, we excluded large registers for diabetes because they are very complex and very different, but we want to bring them in at a later stage. This left us with uh, 69, just under 70,000 patient traces, with just under 1.7 million uh, clinical activities, 44 distinct clinical activities. Uh, we chose arbitrarily that there were 10 topics, 10 treatment patterns. I mean, this could be extended. This is one of the things you have to guess. And you can, you can increase it. You can look at some statistics like entropy to try and figure out what it is. But actually, the best thing to do is to look at the results at the end and see whether it all makes sense. And then the LDR priors, alpha equal to 0.1 and beta equal to 0.01, which are typical values for, for topic modeling. So here's an example of two different patient traces. And you can see a clinical pathway typically involves several underlying patterns of treatment activities. Patterns occur over different time scales and varying different time intervals. The absence or presence of specific pathways may indicate anomaly or malfunction. Um, and it's difficult between just these two patient traces here to see any kind of meaningful pattern emerge, just to the huge variability of the underlying data. And this is where topic modeling can help tease out some of the underlying patterns. So this is our results. So the LDR model separated out 10 distinct treatment patterns and allocated each member a proportion of each treatment pattern. So here's an example of one member who's been allocated treatment patterns 2, 7, and 9 with proportions 0 0.04, 0 0.34, and 0.62 respectively. Now treatment pattern 2 consists of antithrombotic agents, lipid modifying agents, cardiac therapy, and analgesics consultations and diagnostic tests, including ECG, radiology, and pathology, as well as procedures for cardiac catheterization, angioplasties, and stents. Treatment pattern 7 on the other hand consists of similar clinical activities, but with a much higher weighting of medications and diagnostic tests, with very low weighting for surgical interventions. Treatment pattern 9 is just the ongoing medical management of a simple ischemic heart disease member with antithrombotic agents and beta blockers. So now if we combine the weighting of the treatment at, uh, activities based on the, the pattern allocation with the, actual, um, with the actual treatment pattern for each one of those um, identified patterns, we can get a personalized pattern allocation for this member. We expect this member to have diagnostic tests with medication and few, if any, surgical interventions represented by the P1 and the P4. Now, if we look at the actual clinical activities for this patient, they were very much in line with the characterization of the, the treatment patterns, um, which means that it's pretty good at characterizing the single patient. Obviously, there's a lot more validation that we need to do. This was just one example. But what this doesn't allow for is the timing of the clinical activities. Um, and this is fundamental to the discovery of clinical pathways, because a clinical pathway isn't just a set of treatments. It's got timing involved to it as well. So we modified the LDA by introducing another Dirichlet distribution for the time components. This new clinical pathway model generates treatment pattern allocations for members, which in turn generate both the clinical activities and the timing of these activities. So the, the challenge is the formula for LDA are intractable, but one method to fit the model is called the collapsed Gibbs sampling, and leverages Bayesian statistics to estimate the probability of each activity at each time period belonging to a particular treatment pattern using a Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation. 
So the probability of allocating each activity at each time period to a treatment pattern is proportional to the current allocations of all other activities for all other time periods. When we sample from this conditional probability a large number of times and iteratively update the allocations for clinical activities, the model converges to the most likely model for all clinical pathways. So for the modified LDA, we introduced the third component to the conditional probability formula using the collapse Gibbs sampling. So you'll see the lovely formula at the bottom. And the ends in this formula are the counts of the allocations of all clinical activities in patient traces allocated to a treatment pattern excluding the current activity. Okay, now for that treatment pattern two, here's the output of the time allocations for each clinical activity under treatment. So given that you have a clinical activity, this is the distribution of the likely time that it's going to happen. Okay, the probabilities of all 12 activities here sum to one, uh, and this can be combined with the likelihood of each clinical activity occurring under each treatment pattern to get the relative probability of each clinical activity occurring at each time period. So if we look at treatment pattern seven, we can expect the majority of clinical activities to occur in the middle, or at the end of the time period, compared to the previous slide where we saw that most of them happened at the beginning of the time period, and treatment pattern nine, they tend to happen throughout the periods. Medication is ongoing throughout the period, uh, with some follow-up consultations and diagnostic tests, including ECG and other radiology. By combining the treatment pattern allocations and timings for this member, we can get a personalized probabilistic pathway. So this shows the relative probabilities of every clinical activity occurring at each time period, and these probabilities all sum to one. We would expect this member to receive antithrombotic medication and beta blockers to manage their ischemic heart disease with regular consultations, ECGs and radiology, and pathology tests to monitor their condition. We may expect an admission for cardiac catheterization, but no likelihood of surgical interventions such as angioplasty, stent, or cabbage. I'm not going to show you what actually happened to this patient. <laughs> No, it did tie up quite nicely. But I think what we did find is that patients with primary allocated treatments 0, 2, and 5 had the highest average cost per, per ischemic heart disease claimant, so about 80,000 Rand. The cost increased as the proportion of the primary allocated patient, uh, pattern decreases. So the more it's a composite mix of different treatment patterns, the higher the expected costs. So primary allocated pattern 2, for example, with less than 0.2 proportion. So even though it's the primary allocated clinical pathway, it's got less than 20% allocation, had an average cost of 330,000 Rand, with three claimants costing the scheme over a million Rand. So the top 20 ischemic heart disease claimants have combined costs of 55.7 million Rand. 17 have primary pattern 2, average cost allocation of 52%, and unfortunately 10 of them died. So using these primary pattern allocations together with the proportion, we can segment the members to identify high-risk and emerging high-risk members. We got our clinician to have a look at what these clinical pathways actually look like, and we put descriptions to them. So we can see that the highest one clinical pathway 2 we would describe as a complex, complex cardiac disease uh, with no other defining attributes. So some of the others have got very specific defining attributes. And here the average cost per claimant was 98,402 Rand uh, with 5.86% of them dying throughout the year. And you can see we ranked them in terms of the, the average ischemic heart disease cost per patient. Okay, so that was the application of topic modeling in a very unusual way. So second to last is chat, chatty robots. So chatbot computer program acts on behalf of an organization using textual conversations. This can be used for improving customer service or for information retrieval and acquisition. So simple chatbots just scan for keywords in an input and try to match it to a database using either the most matching keywords that it finds or most similar word patterns. I don't know what a wording is. I don't know why that 
script in there. More advanced chatbots have multiple dialogue pathways. So there are conditions to choose which dialogue pathway to follow, and then they follow a question answer almost like a conversation, and then it chooses the next most likely pathway to follow from that. So generally these are accessed by virtual assistants such as Google Assistant, Amazon or Alexa. Um, they are, can be accessed by messaging apps, so very popular in Facebook Messenger to build uh, chatbots. Uh, and what a lot of organizations do is they build them into their apps and their websites like, like Discovery has. So these chatbots are typically built, tested and deployed in cloud platforms. That's the easiest way to do it. There's an Oracle cloud platform and an IBM Watson platform. So we, we're using an IBM Watson platform and it uses intents and entities to determine which dialogue node to follow. So entities are terms or objects like cars, plane tickets, hotel rooms and places that provide context for a particular intent. And the intents are purposes or goals expressed in the input. So you can see what we need to do is we need to have a, we need to train the model in various ways, of the various ways of expressing the same intent using various synonyms or patterns uh, for the same entities to build a robust conversation. So we don't miss a, a, a different way of saying the same thing. So the problem is users are unlikely to provide all the information required on the first question. So instead we need to organize the conversation into a flow. So this consists of branching conversations that define responses for each recognized set of defined intents and entities. So here we have a weather conversation flow which is made up of the following dialogue nodes. So there's a greeting node, a node to ask the user the city of interest, a reply after that city is identified, and a backup in case it can't identify the city you're talking about. So these dialogue nodes are chained together in a tree structure to create interactive conversation. Each node includes conditions for that node to be active, and once active, displays text with a request for the user to respond. The response may fulfill the entity and intent criteria to generate an output, which may either be a return response or to activate further dialogue nodes. And if the, the um, result is unknown, it will then find the next most likely active node to activate. Context from each node can be stored to be used in subsequent nodes. So information can be um, stored over the, over the different conversation. So in the interest of time, I'm not going to go through the exact flow here, but basically it starts with an initial conversation that goes through each one of the, the active nodes. So from a pricing perspective, it starts off free in terms of the light version where you've got uh, limited API calls that you can make. You've got different workspace, five different workspaces where you can set up different kinds of interactions with 110 and 25 different entities, obviously increasing on a price per call basis up to a custom package where you can get high level of security and isolation for your sensitive data. So the control cycle that we kind of followed for this is identify the specific member journey that we want to understand refine that journey down into what questions will they be asking, what answers do we want to give them, define the ground truth and how we're going to find those questions and those answers, build a dialogue, develop and integrate into our web, uh, web platform, test it rigorously, deploy and monitor for continuous improvement. So those are our various different uh, applications so far of, of natural language processing. Uh, in case nobody's asked any, going to ask any questions, I've pre-populated a whole bunch of questions that I'd like to answer. <laughs> so I, I, think, I think the question is, my, my favorite mistranslation using uh, AI is, the vodka is good, but the meat is rotten. That comes from a, a biblical uh, quote, which is, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So it was translated into Russian and then back into English, and you can see what a disaster <laughs> job it did in that. <laughs> good. Matt, thank you so much. Um, unless there's any pressing question that someone wants to get on the record, I suggest that we corner Matt over coffee and tea.
with uh, some of your questions and responses. Thank you.